Welcome to Why Is This Good, a podcast by the Naples Writers Workshop. I'm Christine, and I'm here with John. Hey, John. Hello. Okay, John. It's your turn. Tell us what you picked. Uh, I picked a story by Kurt Vonnegut called Harrison Bergeron. It's pretty famous. One of his uh, most well-known stories, I think. The year was 2081, and everybody was finally equal. They weren't only equal before God and the law, they were equal every which way. Nobody was smarter than anybody else. Nobody was better looking than anybody else. Nobody was stronger or quicker than anybody else. All this equality was due to the 211th, 212th, and 213th Amendments to the Constitution and to the unceasing vigilance of agents of the United States Handicapper General. Some things about living still weren't quite right, though. April, for instance, still drove people crazy by not being springtime. And it was in that clammy month that the H.G. men took George and Hazel Bergeron's 14-year-old son, Harrison, away. It was tragic, all right, but George and Hazel couldn't think about it very hard. Hazel had a perfectly average intelligence, which meant she couldn't think about anything except in short bursts. And George, while his intelligence was way above normal, had a little mental handicap radio in his ear. He was required by law to wear it at all times. It was tuned to a government transmitter. Every 20 seconds or so, the transmitter would send out some sharp noise to keep people like George from taking unfair advantage of their brains. George and Hazel were watching television. There were tears on Hazel's cheeks, but she'd forgotten for the moment what they were about. On the television screen were ballerinas. A buzzer sounded in George's head. His thoughts fled in panic like bandits from a burglar alarm. That was a really pretty dance, that dance they just did, said Hazel. Huh? said George. That dance, it was nice, said Hazel. Yep, said George. He tried to think a little about the ballerinas. They weren't really very good, no better than anybody else would have been anyway. They were burdened with sash weights and bags of birdshot, and their faces were masked so that no one, seeing a free and graceful gesture or a pretty face, would feel like something the cat drug in. George was toying with the vague notion that maybe dancers shouldn't be handicapped, but he didn't get very far with it before another noise in his ear radio scattered his thoughts. George winced. So did two of the eight ballerinas. Hazel saw him wince. Having no mental handicap herself, she had to ask George what the latest sound had been. Sounded like somebody hitting a milk bottle with a ball-peen hammer, said George. I'd think it would be real interesting hearing all the different sounds, said Hazel, a little envious. All the things they think up. Um, said George. Only, if I was handicapper general, you know what I would do, said Hazel. Hazel, as a matter of fact, bore a strong resemblance to the handicapper general, a woman named Diana Moon Glampers. If I was Diana Moon Glampers, said Hazel, I'd have chimes on Sunday. Just chimes. Kind of in honor of religion. I could think if it was just chimes, said George. Well, maybe make them real loud, said Hazel. I think I'd make a good handicapper general. Good as anybody else, said George. Who knows better than I do what normal is, said Hazel. Had you read this one before? Oh, yeah, I read this a while ago, so I was familiar with what it was. I don't think I've read much Vonnegut, actually. I have a couple of his books I just haven't read yet, you know? I can't remember, but this might be the only thing of his I've actually read. Oh, really? I just reread Slaughterhouse-Five. Oh, yeah. And, like, as I was reading it, I realized I had read it before. It was one of those where I'm like, you know, I know what it's about type thing, but it's been a while, so I bought it again and I read it. And, like, halfway through, I was like, oh, that's right. Um, I started to kind of remember stuff, but it had been forever. But uh, I don't think I've read a short story by him, so this was cool. 
What'd you like about this one? Oh, I, I mean, it's like one of those classic speculative fiction things where you take like a, an idea, like a, even like a social problem or social issue and um, try to f- speculate about what a future where that problem is dealt with would, might look like, you know, like doesn't seem as great as everyone wants it to be. You know, you kind of find the downsides. You- Kind of just an exploration of humanity. That's like the classic, um, not the classic, but a classic kind of science fiction thing is like, think about the future and what it might hold, but remembering that we're all still human beings and what do human beings do? And you just kind of follow that out. That's what this is basically, right? I do have problems with some problems with the premise. It's like, I don't know, it's a... Obviously, it's it's cartoonish, right? It's not quite realistic. I don't think anybody would ever agree to... <laughs> enforced equality like that but maybe somebody would until he wrote the story and pointed out how cartoonish it would be yeah i was trying to think what type of social problem this might be solving you know and like who would really have an issue with it because what's interesting about the solution is that they don't make people like the wife in this story smarter they can't make her smarter or more thoughtful or more attractive or whatever you know they can only make the people that they've deemed like too good too smart too beautiful less so which is really really interesting so it's got to be someone in the former category that had an issue in the first place there's nobody who society looked at and was like oh you're too beautiful you're too smart who said you know it's it's really not fair (laughs) that i'm too beautiful and too smart it had to have been the reverse you know and so it seems like such a bizarre solution that way too to just make everyone like a little dumber (laughs) a little less attractive and then obviously like the problem that results is that nobody is able to think too deeply about anything like at first i read this and thought to myself this is a like you said speculative and it's sort of sci-fi whatever it bridges on like all of those types of genres but i think like those genres usually do it's it ends up mostly being what seems like a commentary on not the problem that it's engineering to solve, but more so like the result. And I think the result is the commentary, which is like that we don't think deeply enough about our life experience or we don't engage fully or we look away from difficult problems that seem to be too much. And the result is that these two characters, it's pretty obvious, like there's tears streaming down their faces, but they don't know why, you know? And uh, how can we solve problems unless we look at them square in the face like personal or global you know and for them they this is like such a good lens too to look at that through right these are two people going through what everyone else in the whole world at the time is going through they've all been handicapped somehow and they're also going through something very specific which is that it's their son who is making the spectacle their son who's been taken away and (laughs) you'd think they'd have the strongest reaction but they have one very similar to probably everyone else but there's like something like underlying which is like those tears coming down their face like there's something like they know that this is wrong but they still can't like process it it. yeah they can't they can't remember it they can't process it you kind of wonder like how well they'd be able to process it even if they had their full abilities i guess is the point you know it's it's really easy to just like look away from something difficult the ending is so tragic you know just on a human level yeah you've been crying he said to hazel yep she said what about I forgot. Something real sad on television. What was it? It's all kind of mixed up in my mind. Forget sad things. I always do. 
they just watch their their child get murdered on TV, right? Right. And, that, and they can't remember it. And he's like, yeah, just forget about it. Yeah. And so it makes sense why why he's struggling, right? Because he's been handicapped. But yeah. we're kind of led to believe that the wife is mostly operating with her full capabilities. She hasn't been yeah. handicapped in the same way. She had the tears. It's like, why are you crying? And she just can't remember. Like something's wrong with her. I, I, I say something's wrong with her, but something. Yeah. Something about her mind like makes her forget that. And whether that's just baseline stupidity that everyone is being reduced to. And right. that's that's her natural state. Or if it's uh, some sort of pathology. So one of my thoughts was like, how real? It doesn't feel realistic to me, which is why I feel like it's more cartoonish. It doesn't seem realistic that someone would be like IQ is meant to to measure some something like rationalism. And uh, emotions are, are often seen as irrational. It just seems like there's a disconnect between her ability to understand her own feelings based on the events that have occurred in her life like that doesn't seem like a realistic place to be if you're just dumb (laughs) right do you watch Black Mirror? Have you seen that show on Netflix? I have seen that, yeah. I was reminded of Black Mirror not because they're the only ones doing this kind of thing, but because this particular premise from this story felt like it could very easily be modernized. Oh, yeah. And I think a uh, take that Black Mirror would probably do on this would be, you know, I mean, now it's 2023, so if we're looking still at 2081, it wouldn't be like <laughs> that they had to wear masks to conceal their actual beauty. You know, there'd be like plastic surgery in place. And there wouldn't be yeah. like tones that went off in their head. There'd be like an actual like chip in their brain. And I think if it looked less cartoonish, then if the solution was less obvious and less cartoonish and outlandish and kind of ridiculous and less of a noticeable interference, you know, like there's that point where all the tones go off and two of the ballerinas can't even dance, right? They're being crippled. It's like they're constantly reminded of the fact that these things are in place. But I think what would make this like less kind of because Kurt Vonnegut has like that kind of weird, he, he writes about like horrible things but uh his tone is not horrible his tone is like very much the so it goes thing it's like oh oh well he writes about it from like this level of like well what can he do about it so like don't stress too much but i think like what black mirror would probably take like a very 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 scary (laughs) kind of approach to this and i think that's there and i think that's kind of like why the cartoonishness almost works you know oh yeah absolutely like i said at the beginning it's it's kind of a cartoonish presentation of a cartoonish premise but at heart, they're human beings and it's about yeah. human reactions to things. You know, she they do still have their emotions. She does feel sad. Right. Even though the, um, the handicapping situation makes that doesn't allow her to experience it in the appropriate ways. Whatever her personal situation is, nobody can experience it in the appropriate ways. But we're still human. Right. That's why that last part where it's like um, uh, something real sad. What was it? It was all kind of mixed up in my mind. Forget sad things. I always do. It's like that's the tragedy tragedy, right? You're forgetting yeah. life. You're forgetting everything. Their son was just murdered in, on TV in a really horrific way. Right. I Yeah. So like, I guess the point being that like Black Mirror might have a take on this that would have you coming away from the episode thinking to yourself, like, wouldn't it be really messed up if they did this to us? And thinking about all the scary ways that government might interfere with your daily experience, but it wouldn't come away from the story the same way that Vonnegut's does, which is like that the, the absurdity of it is like kind of juxtapositioned with like the 
tragedy of it. And so by the end, it's so starkly sad, you know? You're not really thinking about, like, the comedy of a ballerina, you know, in the middle of this dance, like, being crippled or, like, wearing a mask or, like, actually having, like, these physical handicaps. Like, it's cartoonish that way, but you're not left thinking to yourself, like, that was kind of hokey or corny. It just, like, kind of serves to better illustrate, like, how tragic it is, how sad it is. Where I think, like, Black Mirror, you come away thinking that was scary. You know, like, I feel like, uh, not just because it's a TV show, but because the more you lean into, like, how realistic the premise is, the more you kind of forget that the point of a story like this is not to think, like, up terrible things that could happen in the future. It's to think about the consequences of those things. Yeah, you want the cartoonishness to give you a little bit of that, like, disconnect from it. Yeah. To give you a perspective on it, I should say, rather than disconnect. We're supposed to focus on not how realistic this necessarily is, but how we might tell ourselves that there is a problem. (laughs) Yeah, like, yeah, not how realistic, but how terrible it it would end up being for everyone. Not that you'd suffer this way, like, physically, but, like, what it would really mean for the human experience, which I think is, like, a lot of, if somebody says that, like, sci-fi wasn't really their thing, it's because they've probably read stories that are focused on the premise versus the consequence here, you know? I think, like, this is, like, a great example of this kind of speculative fiction that can get you interested in it because it's more about the human experience. That's the key, I think, to science fiction. The premise is important, right? The premise defines the genre. like, And it's the story. It's what's unique about the story. What is the most important thing, though, is it you have to go back to these are human beings doing this. Like, I think this might be too blanket, but all the best science fiction isn't necessarily about the science or the, the speculation. It's about the people. It's about human characters and how they behave, how they react to the speculation, to the imagined future, imagined situation. And I think a lot of times people are, when they think of sci-fi, they think of the most outlandish, the most highly imagined types of stories. But I remember we read one very early on. It was sci-fi. It was about like two people like chatting and maybe it was like AI, but it was like online or maybe they didn't have physical bodies. It was Closer by Greg Egan. Look at you. actually got their minds snapped together. Yeah. And so stories like that, I feel like, are easier to imagine these days. The closer we get with things like AI, those are things that are easy to kind of see the leap toward. And I think that's where sci-fi can like really shine. I think a lot of people don't like to think about like, oh, what if, you know, this and this and this happened? And it's just, it's too hard to imagine. It feels too fantasy, you know, to them. It feels too like out there. But I think the stuff that, uh, you know, that's a little closer to what about to happen or has happened is it's easier to kind of read those kinds of stories and then to focus on the humans that play. I mean, this, he's got, it's a radio receiver that you wear in your ear. The technology is like, this is published in 61, 1961. Yeah. So this is what, what is that? That's like 60 years old now. And uh, <laughs> we're so much close. We're actually, um, yeah, we're about halfway in between 61 and uh, 2081 right now, right? <laughs> yeah. But the technology we have now feels more like, you could do this for real. Yes. <laughs> so it feels like um, we're more on the cusp of that. And that there's a, more of a horror to it because of that. Right. Because of the situation, because of our current modern technological situation. Yeah. I think that's why people are really interested in Black Mirror because so much of it is about like the digital world, the digital experience, things like social media. And it's really easy to watch something like that and to be like, I, I have an Instagram. I could see, you know, this playing out in real life in real time tomorrow. You know, it all feels more like imminent and or 
you know, yeah, it's, it's about to happen. Whereas, you know, sci-fi that was written, like you said, in 1960, it would just feel a little bit outlandish or whatever. I mean, he had to imagine how the technology could be like the current technology he was familiar with could be kind of extended to make this happen. And, you know, it's well done. I mean, he came up with yeah. great ideas for how to do oh, that yeah. and it works. But if he were working in the technology we have now, it'd be so much closer, right? I always think of Kurt Vonnegut as being like a science fiction writer, but I don't think his stuff is actually taken to be real science fiction-y. No. It's more like, I don't know what it is. It's something in between. It's like, almost like, like I said, his like attitude is like so whimsical that it, like how serious the premises or how possible it really is, is like less important. You know, like nobody, no science fiction writer would read this and say like, well, this is flawed because he got this part of it wrong. You know, with Kurt Vonnegut, I don't think that he's begging that you understand this thoroughly because I don't think that he really cares that much about it. What he's trying to get at is like this other part of it. You don't really have to understand it to get that that's the concept. I feel like that's probably why Kurt Vonnegut is not considered, like you don't think of him as sci-fi. It's because he, he's less concerned with that, even if that's like where he's coming at it from. I made a comment in a couple episodes ago where about uh, prose. We were talking about The Man Who Lost the Sea, yeah. Theodore Sturgeon's story. And we were talking about how it was like dreamy and there's this like really elegant kind of poetic prose to it. Just the idea of it was poetic, you know, the yeah. different point of points of view. And I mentioned Kurt Vonnegut as an example of one of these, like, I think we called it mechanical writing. And so okay. I thought we should at least mention that this is what we might have called in that episode mechanical writing. And it's just presentational. But it is right. perfectly done. It is so well done. Like you don't notice it, which is kind of the point, right? You fall into the words and you don't notice them. You're just living the experience of it. There's some great little moments of language yes. in it too. It's not just like invisible, but the language just creates the experience. It's not about the language. It's about the experience, but the language creates the experience. I mean, we've talked about that a lot. The idea that the best stories are stories that you don't actively find yourself noticing the writing and yet that tells you that it's the most beautifully done one of the things that would definitely come up in the workshop if there's something like this were brought in <laughs> is all the said like I every know. line is said george that's how he Hazel. does his shit that's how but that's oh my God. that's a that's particular him. style that's yes. a particular theory of prose you put that in every line modern theory i say modern theory but like a certain segment of workshop feedback would be you don't need it there's only two characters just yeah. we know we can follow along but it's not it doesn't mean that's right that's just like a theory of, of how we right read. and there's there's something like uh like it's like an I'm, i can't think of the exact word i i want but it's like it's intentional it's like methodical it's like very purposeful these sets and it and it sets up it's metronomic almost yeah yeah, yeah. So there, there's a pace to it and all of that and like a rhythm, but there's also like, uh, it speaks to the overall theme here, which is that government wants things to be orderly and predictable and at a certain level. That's how this is taking place. You know, said Hazel, said George, George said, said Hazel. You know, it's like, this is how it goes. We're not trying to reinvent the wheel here. Everybody does it this way. Yeah, it's yeah. I also liked, so when uh, Harrison and the uh, ballerina are dancing together, not only were the laws of the land abandoned, but the law of gravity and the laws of motion as well. They reeled, whirled, swiveled, flounced, capered, gambled, and spun. They leaped like deer on the moon. It's good shit. Yeah. 
it's like it's mechanical in a certain sense, but it's also it's got a little poetry in it. Oh yeah, oh yeah. We didn't really talk about kind of what happens here, but like you said, their son is at large. You know, he's like one of these guys, and we hint at this with George. George is physically handicapped, and his wife talks about like, what if you kind of relieved a little bit of the physical burden by like poking a hole in whatever's like around his neck and like letting out some of these lead balls and like literally lightening the load. And he's like, yeah, you know, I could do that, and I'd go to jail for three years or whatever. So we kind of like piece together that Harrison has done the extreme version of that. He has completely gotten rid of whatever physical handicap he had. And now he's making like displays, right? He's like kind of showing other people that it's possible, which is why he's like public enemy number one. Yeah. I mean, well, I'm just, I'm just pointing it out just because we haven't really like talked about that part of the plot. We know that he's like yeah. killed, but that's what's happening here. Like their son has become the face of this movement, this uprising somehow. And the government deems it so dangerous that they're literally going to kill him on TV. It feels like uh, the Joker, you know, (laughs) It's a little bit. I think that's part of the cartoonishness of this is, uh, well, he's described as he's what, he's 14 or 15. And then uh, he's seven feet tall when he comes in and like this perfect Adonis. And then the ballerina that he dances with is the most beautiful person you've ever seen. It's very exaggerated, right? But even their dance, like they leapt like deer on the moon. The studio ceiling was 30 feet high, but each leap brought the dancers nearer to it. It became their obvious intention to kiss the ceiling. They kissed it. And then neutralizing gravity with love and pure will, they remained suspended in air, inches below the ceiling, and they kissed each other for a long, long time. And then they get shot. <laughs> Shotgun to the chest. <laughs> I mean, this like over the top, but his his kind of um, reaction to breaking the handicaps is not like, I want to free you all. It's I am your emperor. I am the now the, the king of everyone, you know, <laughs> which yeah, is it, another one of those. Like, bizarre. Yeah. Like, what does a human being do? in this circumstance and that seems another comment and like another level of the commentary it's like you give someone too much power and what do they do with it now you can agree and disagree with Vonnegut's like assumption about human intentions but that's kind of one of those things that the character is doing yeah I forgot that it was that kind of outlandish I forgot he was like seven feet tall <laughs> it's funny yeah you can laugh at this at the same time being horrified which I mean that's the best yeah yeah, I don't I don't know what my takeaway would be. I mean, I can mention my takeaway if you want. Go for it. I mean, my takeaway is going to be, um, I wasn't sure what it was going to be, but I think it's about being human, about even at the most speculative, outlandish kind of situational, science fiction-y kind of like situation that you want to invent for a story. It's got to come back to people being human beings and how do human beings respond to these things? Like it's got to be about character in some way. Because, you know, you can find a, a premise interesting you can find a premise even compelling but to make it like really grab you you have to see how human beings respond to it yeah what are the emotions and the rationality and the just the human experience of something what does that feel like i think that's what you should concentrate on if you're writing uh something speculative right Yeah, I guess mine would kind of be in line with that fact, which is that like, yeah, there's a premise at play. But like you said, it's only really pulled off or it only really matters if we get to like the human experience of it. And I guess I would say that uh, what we kind of talked about earlier, the idea that I don't know that Vonnegut is maybe considered sci-fi because I don't think he enters into sci-fi as interested in the premise as he is in the commentary, you know, as he is in the consequence. And so if you're somebody that like isn't sure you like sci-fi or maybe you've never written it, one way to 
to think about how you might really enjoy it is to think about how allowing yourself to imagine something like this, a government intervention, can really just give you permission to, to comment on the absurdity of what's currently real. You know, it's just a really good way to to comment on what you feel, to, to, to make a statement, really. You know, I think that also gets to the human experience of it. And I don't really think that I've ever necessarily thought of sci-fi that way. You know, I've always kind of gone more towards what you just mentioned, which is like, oh, you know, sometimes the best sci-fi premises are actually really cool because they let you comment on or they let you like experience what it's like to be human in this world. But it can also be like a political tool, sort of, you know. Yeah, I I think that's it. (laughs) (laughs) That's it, guys. Thanks, guys. If you enjoyed this episode, consider joining our Patreon. Your support helps us keep the show running. Find out more at patreon.com slash whyisthisgoodpodcast. And for industry news, writing tips, and great short fiction, join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Naples Writers Workshop. You can also subscribe to our monthly newsletter at napleswritersworkshop.com.